1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a
2: highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
3: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. For today's podcast, we're bringing you an editor's pick, in which a member of our team chooses one of their own personal highlights from our back catalogue. Today's episode was the choice of our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. Eleanor nominated a conversation she had back in 2018 with Ron Chernow, author of the biography of Alexander Hamilton that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash hit stage musical. They spoke just before Hamilton opened in London's West End, and since the episode first aired, the musical has been released on Disney Plus to a huge global audience. In this interview, Chernow offers some great insights into Hamilton himself and also how his story made its way into song.
4: I'm joined by a prize-winning writer and historian, Ron Chernow, who's written biographies on John D. Rockefeller, George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, and Alexander Hamilton, who we're going to be talking about today. Thank you so much for joining us. My
2: pleasure. Thank you.
4: So Hamilton was a founding father of the United States of America and is the subject of a hugely successful hip-hop musical, um, which I'd love to talk about in a a little while. But if we could first go back way beyond the musical, um, and for those listeners who might not be familiar with the figure of Alexander Hamilton... um, He had a remarkable career, much of which I hope we can explore. Uh, He was effectively George Washington's chief of staff during the American Revolutionary War, during which he also later gained military glory. After that, he founded the Bank of New York. He was a key figure in the creation of the Constitution, uh, first Treasury Secretary of the United States under Washington's administration, and he died as a result of an infamous duel with Aaron Burr. Um, Yet when you came to him, I believe in the late 1990s, you write that he was fading into obscurity. Uh so why do you think this was and what drew you to write about this American founding father? I
2: know it's, it seems comical now the idea that Hamilton was fading into obscurity in nineteen ninety-eight when I started writing about it because now he's the darling of Broadway, maybe soon to be the darling of the West End, uh as 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 well. Um You know, Hamilton, I felt, had never gotten his due. I felt that of the so-called founding fathers of the United States, he was the most uh, neglected and um, underappreciated and misunderstood of those uh, figures. And Alexander Hamilton's uh, political enemies were uh, John Adams' Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe. I just named presidents two, three, four, and five. And if history is written by the victors, history had been very much written by Alexander Hamilton's enemies so that he'd always been portrayed uh, as this ferocious snob. He was the stooge of uh, of, of the plutocrats. But Um, For most Americans, and again, you know, British audiences that see the show and they may feel that they're at a disadvantage in terms of knowing the history. Americans don't know their history very well either, so they won't be quite as much of a disadvantage as they'll think. But when I started uh, doing the book, uh, most Americans, including, I think, Lin-Manuel Miranda, when uh, he first read the book, uh, they knew two things about Alexander Hamilton. He is on the uh, $10 bill. In the United States. Uh, and they knew that he had uh, died in a duel with um, Vice President Aaron Burr at the time. But that pretty much exhausted what most people knew. And yet the more that I read about him, I realized that his uh, personal story was far and right the most dramatic. And in fact, rather unbelievable uh, story of any of the founders, and uh, also there was a feeling that he was kind of a second or third-rate founder, and the more I read about his achievements, his achievements were so monumental that I felt that he deserved to be up there on the pantheon with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, et al.
4: And I think a really fascinating aspect, which comes out immediately in your book, is that um, Despite all of these achievements, remarkable achievements in American history, um, his uh, origins were unexpected, I think, for some. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about his birth in the West Indies and the hardships he suffered as a young man.
2: Right. He, you know, he was born on the island of Nevis, which made him a British subject, which is interesting in terms of what subsequently happens in his career. Uh, but then when he's around uh, 10 or 11 years old, um, his family moves to uh, St. Croix, which is today one of the U.S. Virgin Islands, but at the time was a Danish uh, colony. And then Hamilton uh, undergoes this a ghastly series of misfortunes like something out of uh, Charles Dickens' novel. Um, uh, His parents were uh, not married. His mother had been married before, and under the terms of that divorce, she could not legally remarry, which essentially um, consigned Alexander to being illegitimate, which was no small thing to have that stigma in the 18th century. But then what happens? His biological father, or we think his biological father, James Hamilton, who was Scottish, the younger son of a Scottish- Laird uh, James Hamilton abandons the family when Alexander is 11. Uh, his mother then dies when he is 13 um, he's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide so you know at 14 years old he's illegitimate you know he's orphaned he' experienced this terrible series of calamities and he's working as a clerk in a trading house um, and it looks like he will be doomed forever to this small island. In the Caribbean. But then what happens in 1772 uh, when he's 17 years old? A monster hurricane hits St. Croix. It's thought that a tsunami may have rolled across the island as well. Uh, and uh, Hamilton sat down and wrote a letter, a description of the hurricane that was published in the local uh, newspaper and it was written in a very vivid, almost kind of Shakespearean uh, prose, describing the experience of living through the hurricane. <clears throat> well, all the local merchants on uh, St. Croix suddenly discovered that they had this young prodigy in their midst, and Hamilton was largely self-educated. He was an autodidact throughout his life. They were so astonished by this letter describing the uh, hurricane that they banded to Together, and they took up a collection to send him to the North American uh, colonies, possibly with the idea that he would become a a doctor and come back and tend to the island. That, of course, didn't uh, happen. And so he's around 17 years old, 1772. He goes to the North American uh, colonies, winds up in New York, and he doesn't know a soul. He doesn't have any connection in the world. He's armed with a few letters of uh, introduction. That was it. And by an extraordinary series of um, circumstances, uh, five years later, he ends up as aide-de-camp and chief of staff to General George Washington. So Hamilton was somebody who um, radiated genius as well as radiated uh, charm. There was a quote that I always loved uh, uh, Samuel Johnson said of uh, meeting Edmund Burke. He said that um, Burke was so brilliant that if one day you sheltered under an awning from the rain and there was this stranger, who was Edmund Burke, and you chatted with him for five minutes, and then five minutes later the rain stopped and you said goodbye and parted ways. By the end of the five minutes, you would have known you were in the presence of genius. And I think that was exactly how people responded to, to Hamilton, that his brilliance kind of overflowed with this brilliance and charm and, um, and, and, and wit. So his, his rise, <laughs> I would say meteoric, which is a cliche, but it kind of gives new, new meaning to that uh, term.
4: Right, and, yeah. and I think that really comes across in your book is that he was such a frenetic character and full of energy and so um, unstoppable in many ways. But it was really this the war and the opportunity of revolutionary war that allowed him to rise so swiftly. So could you perhaps talk about the revolutionary uh, nature of the city that he found himself
2: in? <laughs> Yeah, um, the Revolutionary War becomes Hamilton's great career opportunity. I mean, he believed in it, but I think he also saw it as an opportunity to rise in the, uh, in the world. Okay, he went to um, King's College uh, in, <coughs> in Lower Manhattan. Uh, King's College, uh, after the Revolutionary War, was renamed Columbia. I think fundraisers realized that King's would have been a hard sell after the Revolution. Uh, and uh, he was a brilliant student, but what happens is that the ferment... Um, of the revolution has already started. So Hamilton is writing, um, uh, stirring pamphlets. The school was right near the uh, common, what's today's City Hall Park in Lower Manhattan. And Hamilton gives these rabble-rousing, you know, speeches uh, in the commons. Uh, And then as things get more serious and uh, violence starts, uh, he is uh, drilling uh, company of students in St. Paul's churchyard, which actually is still there. It's immediately across the street from ground zero. And amazingly, was, you know, not uh, destroyed uh, on 9-11, but it was right across the street. So, uh, And then what happens? Hamilton becomes, um, now 1775, Hamilton becomes the uh, captain of an artillery uh, unit. And uh, he is, as with everything, so brilliant doing this that he comes to the attention of several generals. And three or four generals uh, invite him onto his staff, and Hamilton says no. But then comes the irresistible (laughs) invitation by George Washington to become his aide-de-camp. Now, at that point, so now we're 1777, um, Hamilton would have been about 22, 23 Uh, years old. But he becomes such a valued member of Washington's staff that when you look at the minutes of the various councils of war during the revolution, you'll see 10 generals listed. And then at the bottom, it will say Colonel Hamilton. So here's this kind of boy wonder, who's immediately at, as Lynn says, the right hand of the father. (laughs) It's a wonderful line. Yes, Hamilton is at the right hand of the father. But Hamilton, you know, anyone else would have been thrilled by that position. Hamilton is chafing. Because Hamilton, from the time that he was a boy, in fact, from our earliest letter that he wrote in his early teens, he's dreaming of battlefield glory. So he feels chained to the desk with Washington. Washington needed um, a great letter writer more than he needed another battlefield hero because Washington actually had uh, 14 political masters. He was dealing with the Continental Congress, uh, but there were also uh, 13 uh, governors of the 13 states. So he had to he had this vast correspondence <laughs> with his, his 14 masters. And Hamilton was a great letter writer, and Washington would give him the gist of what the letter should say, and then out would pop this you know, beautiful letter. And Hamilton learned to very much sort of write in the vein of uh, George Washington. So there's friction. between between them because, as Lynn says, you know, Hamilton would rather fight, not right, which is accurately uh, put. And then uh, finally, Hamilton can stand it no longer. He kind of provokes a, a quarrel with Washington and quits his staff. But basically, Hamilton is just lining himself up for a battlefield assignment, which happens at Yorktown, which, of course, is the climactic battle of the war and Hamilton finally achieves the battlefield heroics that he's been dreaming of since his early adolescence.
4: So going back uh, briefly to his origins then, and um, I know that this is something that the musical maybe brings out as well, His his feeling perhaps of being an outsider, which... um, his later you know, marriage, I suppose, almost does glean him a little bit of insider status, but he still has that maybe a chip on his shoulder. How much do you think that um drove him to to wanting conflict and wanting um later jewels? It's it's, you
2: know it's, it's it's a very good uh, question i think the, the the point um to emphasize here is his illegitimacy. I don't know about in England or the United States. I think that you know half of all you know mar- half of all birth sour to people who um are technically illegitimate we don't use the term anymore because the stigma of it has um, almost entirely disappeared i mean you never hear people describe that way <clears throat> anymore but in the 18th century those are kind of fighting words to say that someone was illegitimate to call someone was a, a bastard and on those occasions when that happened with hamilton by all accounts he was thrown into a frenzy. Uh, And he said, you know, my birth has been the subject of the most humiliating censure. Um, And so I think that it was very important uh, for him as uh, an outsider, not only to attain that kind of standing with Washington, um, but also, you know, he lacked what um, in the 18th century they called, you know, <clears throat> birth, breeding, and fortune. Kind of use the language of a Jane Austen novel. Um, and so he marries Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, who's a member of this Anglo-Dutch royalty that has ruled New York since its uh, earliest uh, days. And uh, Eliza Schuyler um, has all of these... Um, Van Cortlandt, Van Rensselaer, uh, relatives, not names to conjure with here, but certainly you know, in New York, if you mention those names, those are kind of the aristocratic Dutch you know, names of, uh, of New York. And so it's rather amazing that um, she falls in love um, with Hamilton, and even more amazing that the Schuyler family, very, very aristocratic uh, family um, uh, in upstate New York, uh, that they embrace him. The idea of embracing this young man, who's kind of an illegitimate orphaned kid from the islands, was very, very unusual at the time. And is testimony to just how dazzling Hamilton was uh, in person, because it was a very, very difficult society to to break into. You know, and Americans like to pretend that this snobbery doesn't exist in our country, but it most certainly does. <laughs> and Hamilton manages to break through that and very much become part of the social establishment as well as the political establishment. It's a, it's a fairytale story. And I think that one thing that, um, you know, Lynn captures extremely well uh, in the show is Hamilton's... Driven nature, just how determined he was in every respect, you know, in the social sphere, the political sphere, the economic sphere you know, to attain his place in the world and he he does by dint of his talent. Uh,
4: you touched on it in your last answer, but I think it'd be great to um, cover Hamilton's genius uh, in a financial sense. Um, so it was in the late stages of the Revolutionary War, I think, that he began to really think ahead in terms of the um, financial institutions of the United States, the early United States. Um, can you perhaps explain the type of systems he was looking at and what he was advocating for? Yeah, actually,
2: you know, during the um, Revolutionary War, he's lugging from camp, to camp, enormous folio-sized volume of uh, Postlethwaite's Dictionary of Trade and Commerce. And he's already kind of, you know, boning up for being uh, Treasury Secretary. During the war, uh, Hamilton was very closely studying the, uh, the British system because he realized that um, Great Britain had a lot of advantages uh, over the, uh, the colonists. And one that was really foremost in his mind was, was Britain's financial power that Britain had, you know, arranged its credit in a way that enabled it to raise money, you know, when war was uh, needed. Uh, And so Hamilton is basically kind of studying, um, you know, the British system and then copying the British system in order to overtake the British system, maybe not unlike what a China is going through with the United States uh, today. So that um, uh, after the war, he establishes the first private bank in New York, um, the Bank of New York. He's not only a director, he sits there, he single-handedly, you know, writes the Constitution and bylaws for the bank. And then very significantly, when uh, he is Treasury Secretary, he creates the first central bank in the United States, called the Bank of the United States, really the forerunner of What's today the Federal Reserve System, and as he's writing up the bylaws of the uh, Bank of the United States, he's sitting there with the bylaws of the Bank of England on the on the desk. So he's kind of very self-consciously uh, copying that uh, system. He also, the single most important thing that Hamilton ever did in his life uh, sounds um, at first blushed very technical. Uh, And it was this assumption of state debt that uh, by the time uh, the federal government was formed and he became the first Treasury Secretary, um, the United States had... Um, used uh, debt in order to finance the Revolutionary War. And the government was in arrears, both principal and interest on that debt. So essentially, the government starts and it's bankrupt. And he's the Treasury Secretary. And he decides that he's going to pay you off that debt in full. He, 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 he you know, extends the, um, the deadline for repaying it. But he's determined to establish American credit. And he makes a very interesting decision that at first glance seems counterintuitive. There was $50 million in federal uh, debt that the Continental Congress had incurred. And then there was $25 million that the state governments had independently Mm -hmm. incurred. Hamilton says to the states that he wants to assume the $25 million debt. In other words, he wants to take the money off their books and put it onto the books of the federal government. This seems counterintuitive, what government in history has voluntarily asked to increase debt and taken debt off the hands of other government entities. So why did he do that? Um, Hamilton did it because he knew that if the federal government assumed that state debt, that it would forever after have a lock on revenues, um, and, in fact, there was a famous uh, dinner deal, and it's mentioned in the, uh, the show. There's a dinner deal in which Hamilton felt so strongly about state debt that he had a dinner with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and Jefferson Madison agreed that they would support the assumption of state debt, and in exchange, uh, the U.S. Capitol would be put on the Potomac River, where Washington, D.C., is in fact uh, today. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, in later years, Uh, said that it was the single biggest mistake of his career because it's so tremendously centralized power in the federal government. He didn't realize what Hamilton's underlying agenda was. He didn't realize kind of what the underlying logic Uh, of the whole thing uh, was. And so, you know, I always say to American audiences, we pay, you know, federal, state, and local taxes. I always say to American audiences that um, Americans to this day pay more in federal taxes than state, local. And it goes back to that dinner deal about the assumption of state debt. So Helton knew exactly what he was doing. But it was kind of characteristic of him that he would take something that seemed like a very technocratic program uh, and embedded in that Uh, Was a political agenda that would not immediately be apparent. Very clever, yeah.
4: And it was after the Revolutionary War that he was um, invited to join the Congress. Um, And then he was a key figure in the forming of the Constitution.
2: Yeah. In fact, we know what happens. He actually, he's at a conference uh, in, in Maryland. He personally issues the appeal to the Constitutional Convention. He attends it as a delegate from New York. He's the only New York delegate to sign it. And then what happens afterwards, no less important, Uh, Because uh, after the uh, Constitution was approved in Philadelphia in 1787, it had to be ratified by the individual, by conventions in the individual states. So Hamilton, along with Madison and John Jay, Hamilton dreams up the idea that there'll be a series of essays that will defend the Constitution pretty much article by article. And they were called the Federalist Papers. And there were 85 of them. And um, over a six-month period, Hamilton somehow managed to write 51 of them, which would be uh, an enormous enough achievement by itself. But we know that he was writing them while he had a full-time legal practice. So he was, as it were, writing these nights and weekends. Um, and we have anecdotal evidence of, you know, Hamilton dashing off the final sentences and the printer would be sitting in the outer office and then kind of rush to print it. And um, the, the the Federalist Papers are considered the greatest uh, interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. And over the last two centuries, they have been cited more than 300 times by the U.S. Supreme Court, which is far more than any other document. So They have almost acquired the status of the Constitution itself. They're kind of held in that much uh, reverence. And it's amazing because they really were, you know, work of journalism pumped out under great pressure um, and one of Hamilton's enormous uh, achievements. And when you read them today, they're just almost letter perfect. This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate you
2: need indeed life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour
3: elevate every morning with Tommy John's second skin underwear
4: it seems as though we can't talk about Alexander Hamilton yeah. without talking about Thomas yeah. Jessen, Jefferson, his his great political rival. And I, I suppose many, many people would have come to Alexander Hamilton likely first through the sphere of Thomas Jefferson. So could you maybe explain their political rivalries and how um, the significance of it in American
2: history? Yeah, well, what happens, um, OK, during Washington's uh, first term as president, so we're talking 1879, the federal government has just been forged under the new constitution. Uh, Washington's cabinet consists of only three people. There's Henry Knox, Secretary of War, Um, there's Alexander Hamilton, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and there's Thomas Jefferson, who's Secretary of State. In order to um, understand the, the rivalry, first, have to point out that um, Thomas Jefferson starts at the State Department with uh, six people, Knox at the War Department with 12. Uh, Hamilton, because he has all these customs inspectors and revenue collectors, Hamilton's Treasury Department is immediately several hundred people, which was considered, by the standards of the day, very large bureaucracy. So Hamilton, um, at age 34 uh, and about a dozen years younger than uh, Jefferson, is immediately more like the prime minister of the administration, because his Treasury Department is you know, considerably more than 90 percent of the government. So there's that kind of um, rivalry. But then what happens um, was, you know, the the, uh, the the founders of the United States all hoped that they would be spared the bane of parties, which they called factions at the time. But um, actually what happens within the first year or two of Washington's first term is that uh, the two-party system arises, <laughs> and uh, Washington's horror, it arises within his own cabinet from Hamilton and, and, and Jefferson. It was partly a personality clash. You know, um, uh, Hamilton was extremely dashing and flamboyant. Thomas Jefferson was very quiet. He was very courtly. Um, If you uh, disagreed with Jefferson in in person, he probably would not confront you. He would just sort of make a mental note that he was going to get back at you (laughs) in his own quiet way, in his own quiet time. Hamilton would immediately sort of engage you and challenge you. With kind of very different uh, personalities. But they came to embody two different uh, political philosophies. And these two different political philosophies still resonate through American politics to this day. Okay, some of the conflicts in their positions. Uh, Hamilton believed strongly uh, in a powerful central government. Uh, Jefferson believed strongly in states' rights. Jefferson uh, believed in legislative power. He thought the legislature was closest to the people. Hamilton believed in executive power and that kind of vigor uh, in government. Very, very importantly... Jefferson believed in what we call strict construction of the Constitution. That is, unless some power was specifically delegated to the federal government that it did not possess it, <clears throat> Hamilton had a much more liberal interpretation of the Constitution, that he said, well, if these goals are specified uh, in the Constitution, if um, the, you know, measures that are means to those goals, you know, should be allowed. And this really kind of allows the government to tremendously uh, expand its uh, powers. Um, So as I said, these things still resonate. And then very importantly, and I think I emphasize this in the book, and certainly Lynn emphasizes it in the show as well, um, Thomas Jefferson owned 200 Slaves. And his defense of states' rights was very much a defense of the slavery (laughs) uh, in those southern uh, states. Um, Hamilton was an abolitionist during the war. He champions a plan to emancipate any slaves who are willing to fight for the Continental Army. Of course, the British were doing something very, very similar uh, on the other side. Uh, And then after the war, Hamilton co founds the first uh, abolitionist society in New York. So I think more and more, you know, as time has gone on, when we look back, that um, the relationship between Jefferson and Hamilton looks different because, you know, when I was growing up, it was Thomas Jefferson was this perfect human being. He was the tribune of the common man, you know, and woman. And Hamilton was, you know, a fierce elitist. And then when you kind of look in terms of their attitude towards uh, slavery, their attitudes towards Native Americans, Hamilton starts to look better and better, and Jefferson does, does not. So that's kind of been a major change in the way these figures... Are perceived.
4: So I'd love to talk about Eliza Hamilton, who um, bookends your, your marvelous book. Um, you already spoke about how her marriage kind of legitimized Hamilton in some ways. Um, so could you introduce us to Eliza and then maybe to her sister Angelica as well?
2: Absolutely. Well, one thing that I should point out is that uh, at the time that I published the Hamilton biography in 2004, Uh, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton was a complete blank in the American imagination. Americans knew a lot about Martha Washington, George's wife. They knew a lot about Dolly Madison, James Madison's wife. They knew a lot about Abigail Adams, John Adams. wife. They knew nothing. And I mean, literally nothing about Eliza Hamilton was uh, known. So one of the things that has most pleased me about both the book and the show is that we really put her on the map. And now she's like everyone's, you know, founding mother, which is really great. And um, there was a reason that we didn't know about Eliza, because she was an extremely... Um, humble and self-effacing and a very uh, devout woman and she always felt you know her husband's career that was the important career but you know what I uh, discovered was that um, she lived for uh, 50 years after her husband died in the in the duel there's a beautiful rhymed couplet in the show, she comes out in the final scene and she says, I stop wasting time on tears, I live another 50 years. And during those 50 years, so she lives almost up until the Civil War era, uh, during those 50 years she establishes the first private orphanage in New York City. Uh, Of course, her husband had been an orphan. Um, And she brings up hundreds of orphans, and she turned out to be this remarkably wonderful, um, uh, selfless, uh, strong-willed woman. And even though, um, I mean, she had had to put up... A lot with her husband, who got involved in a notorious uh, sex uh, scandal, but she was very, very loving and forgiving. And in all the letters she wrote after he died, she always referred to her sainted husband, so she was willing to forgive his excesses. Now they had—it was kind of a, I guess, menage a trois would not be right, quite the right expression for it, but uh, everyone noticed that uh, Hamilton was um, no less fascinated by his sister-in-law, Angelica, uh, than by Eliza. In, in the show, when Hamilton meets Angelica, she's still single, which makes it kind of more interesting. In reality, when they met, Angelica was already married. So almost by default, Hamilton was going to end up with um, uh, Eliza. But everyone noticed that there was this um, unusual mutual fascination between Alexander Hamilton and uh, Angelica. Uh, and, um, but Eliza was not uh, uh, jealous. In fact, Eliza was very, very proud uh, of this. She loved the fact, I mean, she and Hamilton would write letters together to um, uh, Angelica. Uh, um, Angelica had married um, a man named John Barker Church, who was both very, very fat and very, very rich. And Eliza was very proud. She had married Prince Charming, you know, uh, and um, Angelica, unlike Eliza, um, Eliza had strong, you know, political feelings, but Angelica was really someone who loved the company of powerful men and loved to discuss politics in books. She was much more emancipated, you know, in that way. And so she was very, very involved uh, in Hamilton's career and advising him and kind of vicariously living through his uh, life. And I, th- I think clearly if um, Angelica had been uh, single at the time that uh, Hamilton met the Schuyler sisters, um, there certainly is a good chance that he would have... Married Angelica, I think he, he truly loved um, uh, Eliza. Angelica was kind of more um, more intellectual and from the pictures probably more alluring uh, than Eliza was. And I think that Hamilton adored Eliza, but um, uh, as Angelica sings in the musical, uh, she knew right off that Hamilton was the kind of guy who would never be satisfied and, you know, would have a, a roving eye. And boy, she was right about that
4: aside from these um, two very significant relationships with the Schuyler sisters. Um, he was obviously a very amorous figure outside of those as well. Yeah, he's called the, the amorous Treasury
2: Secretary. Lynn <laughs> didn't use that in the show. At one point, he had it uh, in there. But I'm sure he's the only Treasury Secretary in American history has been known as the amorous Treasury Secretary.
4: <laughs> right. And uh, Well, yeah. I'd love to talk about what you call um, America's first great sex scandal, which yeah. um, shook the establishment, pretty much, and his, his yeah. remarkable um, reaction to it as well. Yeah,
2: what happens uh, in uh, 1791, so really at the height of his powers as Treasury Secretary, the government to that point was temporarily in Philadelphia, and Hamilton was not only the most powerful person in the government, he was the most controversial person in the government, which meant that there were kind of a lot of political enemies who were waiting to pounce on him if he did something wrong. Well, what happens, he's home alone one day, knock on the door, very beautiful young woman named Mariah Reynolds, uh, is at the door. Um, she spills out this love tale that she's been abandoned by her husband, James Reynolds, and asks Hamilton for financial help. And amazingly enough, Hamilton asks where she's living. She says a boarding house just two or three blocks away. And that night, he slips out of the house and goes to the boarding house. And he said that when he got to the boarding house, um, Mrs. Reynolds was standing at the top of the stairway. Uh, And he said he went up the stairs, and he said when he got to the top of the stairs that um, Mrs. Reynolds made it clear that, quote, other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. And they then went into the bedroom, and this affair started. And the affair went on for a year. Um, And maybe a month after it started, who appears but Mr. James Reynolds. And James Reynolds confronts Hamilton with the affair. But James Reynolds really doesn't want to stop the affair. What James Reynolds wants is to blackmail Hamilton, which he does. And Hamilton starts paying money. Now, this is completely crazy on Hamilton's part. Again, he's the most powerful man in the government. He has all these enemies, you know, who are sort of looking for something uh, to pounce on. And he's paying money to this kind of lowlife life. James Reynolds. Well, he was very, very lucky that um, there was a moment where three of his Jeffersonian opponents um, have heard that he's paying money to Mr. James Reynolds. But what they'd heard, which was incorrect, was that he was paying the money to James Reynolds because they were um, illegally speculating in treasury securities together. And so the three Jeffersonians, and actually in the show, it's Jefferson, Madison, and Burr, in reality, it was three Jeffersonians, but not Jefferson, Madison, Burr, who confront him. And Hamilton says, oh, no, no, you've completely misunderstood why I was paying him the money. I was paying him the money for the favor of his wife's company. So they said, oh, we're so sorry to bother you. We didn't realize that that was considered you a know, good explanation. And then um, it was not until about um, five or six years later that a pamphlet was published by a man named James D. Callender, who was close to the Jeffersonians. He publishes a pamphlet in which he says that uh, he kind of repeats the error that Hamilton was paying James Reynolds this money uh, because of illicit treasury speculation. Hamilton then makes this bizarre decision that he's uh, going to not only refute this, but refute this excruciating length. So he publishes a 95-page pamphlet 95-page pamphlet in which he reproduces not only tells this whole story in great detail but reproduces his correspondence with Mrs. Reynolds and all these kind of crazy love letters Uh, and why so why did he do that Hamilton felt that in order to clear his public name he had to sully his private name but even you know Hamilton's closest friends and greatest admirers thought that a and a delicately worded paragraph or two would have done the trick. They couldn't figure out why he needed to publish a 95-page pamphlet. And of course, there was nothing that could have been more humiliating for his wife or his family than this. uh, It was almost kind of like a short novel that he uh, wrote about this. And uh, writing projects with Hamilton tend to take on a life of their own. You know, once he started writing, he couldn't, he couldn't stop. And so um, I think as much as the scandal itself, his response to it, this kind of excessive verbiage that he devotes to it, um, really uh, called into question his judgment of why on earth he would have uh, uh, done this. Um, Hamilton... You know, like a lot of brilliant people, uh, Hamilton had some real uh, blind spots because he thought he was writing this sort of brilliant pamphlet that would clear him forever. And then it comes out uh, and it has exactly the opposite effect that he had uh, intended and pretty much guaranteed that he would never be president.
4: It's a remarkable defence of his political honour. And I think these affairs of honour, as you call them in the book, are are very important to him throughout his whole life, his whole career. Um, So maybe you could introduce um, some listeners who might not be familiar with the the nature of dueling and the the way in which it would have defended honour and how it played a part in Hamilton's life.
2: Dueling it was really an honour culture. I think that uh, in situations today where someone um, insults us or maligns us in some way, uh, we would be likely to uh, sue them for libel and take them uh, to court. That was a possibility in the eighteenth century, but under this you know dueling code, um, if someone insulted you who was your social equal, um, you didn't take them to court. you would issue a challenge for a duel. <clears throat> now, most uh, duels did not actually end up on the dueling ground. Or even if they did end up on the dueling ground, each 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 participant would uh, pick a second, and the seconds, even on the dueling ground, would be trying to negotiate uh, a solution, usually in the form of an apology. Um, so, <clears throat> the, the the duel itself, the possibility of you know being injured, or even you know being killed, that sort of concentrated everyone's you know mind um, on it, and the uh, seconds would try to negotiate. A solution. Hamilton actually had been involved in many of these so-called affairs of honor. The only thing unusual about what happened at the end of his life with Aaron Burr was that in all the previous affairs of honor, it was Hamilton who was the aggressor. It was Hamilton who was one who was kind of sending the threatening letters and kind of you know um, uh, threatening. Uh, the uh, the duels. And so all of those were, in fact, resolved without any violence at the end. So what happens with Aaron Burr, because he and Burr had been um, legal rivals, uh, they'd been military rivals, they'd been political rivals, and Burr had felt, they were the two major political figures from New York State, Burr felt kind of at every point in his career that Hamilton was the one who was stymieing um, him. And then finally what happens in 1804, at an Albany dinner party, Hamilton utters a so-called despicable opinion about Burr. This gets into the newspapers, not the specifics of it. It's just characterized as a despicable opinion. Uh, and so now, for the first time, Hamilton is involved in Fair honor. but it's Burr who wants to know what a despicable opinion is, and he wants Hamilton to apologize for the despicable opinion, which Hamilton refuses to, uh, to do. So this escalates. This goes to the dueling ground. Um, and one very important thing that um, two and a half years earlier, Hamilton's son, Philip, Zelda's son, um, had been killed in a duel, also on the New Jersey shore, not too far from where Hamilton will, will die. Um, and so Hamilton, because of that experience, has kind of a complicated attitude towards dueling, because on the one hand, his son has died in a duel, so officially he no longer believes in dueling. On the other hand, he felt that as a political figure, as a military figure, if he uh, refused the challenge to go to the dueling ground, that he would be branded a coward. It's a little hard for us to think ourselves into this mindset. Um, And so what he decides to do, and it was not uncommon at the time, he decides he's going to go to the dueling ground, so he'll show his courage, he's going to show up with Burr, but he's going to waste his shot, he's going to fire in the air. And then hope against hope that Burr will do the same, but as we know, Burr did not. Uh, and Burr, you know, kills him, well, mortally wounds him with the first shot. Hamilton is then rowed across the Hudson River back to uh, Manhattan, and within uh, 24 hours, is dead. And it's kind of a very moving moment at the very end. Uh, it's, it's it's not in the musical because in the musical, he has only uh, two children only one of whom was seen, whereas in reality he had seven children. Uh, He had Eliza, as he was lying there bleeding to death, he said to Eliza he wanted Eliza to line up all of the children at the foot of the bed. And she did, and they all were standing there. And he took one look at all the children and then shut his eyes. He wanted that to be his last, you know, image of them, kind of quite, quite a dramatic moment in his life in American history. You know, and then he died.
4: It is a remarkable history, a remarkable end to a remarkable life. But um, I might say that it's not necessarily the most obvious fodder for a a hip-hop musical at first glance. So I'd love to talk to you about um, your work on the musical, which Lin-Manuel Miranda has written, and it's a massive hit, obviously. Um, As a historical consultant on the musical, um, can you talk a little bit about your work on it and how it came about?
2: Yeah, so the story was this. Okay, the, the, uh, the biography came out in 2004. I met Lin in the fall of 2008. He was still starring in his first uh, musical. It was called In the Heights, which was a very autobiographical musical about growing up in a Latino neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, I found out through a mutual friend that uh, Lin had read the, uh, the the book and made a huge impression on him. And I went to see In the Heights and then went backstage to meet Lin. And we had this unforgettable conversation where uh, I said, Lynn, I gather my book made an impression on you. And he started telling me he had been reading the book on vacation in Mexico. And he said hip hop songs started rising off the page as he was reading it. And um, he said to me uh, very earnestly, he said, you know, Ron Hamilton's life is a classic hip hop narrative. (laughs) And I thought to myself, pal, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, But what Lynn felt, Lynn had two points of entry. Uh, One was that this hip hop narrative idea that uh, for him, you know, hip hop heroes are people who had written their way out of poverty or obscurity, kind of through their power, the power of language. So that was one thing. The other, Lynn is from a Puerto Rican family. And uh, so he saw the Hamilton story as kind of classic immigrant story. Lynn's father, who's from Puerto Rico, had come to New York in his late teens, knowing very little English, ended up, I think, getting a PhD you know, and having a very successful career as a political consultant to various um, New York uh, mayors. So, uh, and so the very first time that I met Lynn. Uh, he said to me, uh, would you like to be the historical consultant to this non-existent musical? Uh, so I laughed and I said to him, you mean you want me to tell you when something is wrong? And he said, yes. He said, I want the historians to take this seriously, which, which they have.
4: And do you think it's a, a, an effective medium to bring people to this history?
2: Well, I asked him, that was actually the first question that I ever asked him that day. I said, can this be the vehicle? for telling, uh, this is a very complicated man, it's a very complicated story. Uh, I mean, usually the world of uh, musicals is kind of a make-believe world with two-dimensional characters. This was very complex. And he said, Ron, I'm going to educate you in hip-hop. And he pointed out a number of things that are very germane to the show. Number one, because the hip-hop lyrics are very dense and rapid, you can pack an enormous amount of information... Uh, into them. It's really Hamilton is a little under three hours, but it's really like a six hour show squashed into <laughs> three hours because the hip hop is so compressed. You start pointing at things like the hip hop. Um, it's a lot of rhyme. There are rhymed endings, this internal rhyme, uh, enormous amount of wordplay. And all of these things are sort of very, very important to the to the show. So I didn't know anything about hip hop then. Now I know a tiny little bit about hip-hop because of the show, but it really works. And I think the hip-hop works. Uh, And in the show, Hamilton sings in hip-hop. The whole show is not in hip-hop by any means. But in the show, Hamilton sings in hip-hop because he's the youngest of the founders, so he's cool, so he sings in in hip-hop. And I think that there's like a perfect match between the intensity, the density of the hip-hop and... Um, Lynn presents Hamilton as this very driven character. So the music and the personality work together perfectly.
4: So the musical, as we're talking, is very shortly to open in the West End. Yep. Um, and your, uh, your remarkable book, published by Head of Zeus, is out now. Uh, thank
0: you so much for your time today, Ron.
2: Oh, this has been delightful. Thank you.
0: <laughs> that was Ron Chernow. We'll have more editor's picks coming up for you over the Christmas period, so keep refreshing your feed for those. And if you've got some time to kill between the board games and the mince pies, then head over to historyextra.com for a whole treasure trove of podcasts, articles and quizzes on all things historical. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.